0: Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. I wanted to, uh, wanted to make sure that we, um, we address the mom's in every room and thank you so much for being the people that you are, for caring the way you do, for loving your families the way you do. Uh, We are all deeply appreciative of your work, of your service, of your care, of all that God has made you for. Uh, It is a fascinating thing to read in the scriptures of what a virtuous woman looks like and when we study that passage, we see a mom Uh, that young women should strive to be, and we see a mom, a benchmark of a mom uh, for the moms that exist. So it's just an amazing, amazing uh, truth in Proverbs 31, but uh, we want to thank you for all that you do and for loving, uh, loving your families the way God has commanded you and called you to love them. So uh, with your Bibles, I'd have you turn to Psalm 119 again this morning, Psalm 119, and we are going to spend our time in verses 153 through 160, Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160, these are the words of God, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because... uh, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And this verse is so powerful. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. That's the verse that I want to highlight today, and I want to spend some time really thinking through uh, the principles that this particular verse teaches us and and has for us. So again, Psalm 119, specifically verse 160, says this. It says that the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Now, some translations will will, uh, render this, that the beginning of your word is truth. And it's true enough that the word "rosh," or uh, I suppose in Hebrew it's pronounced "rosh," but uh, in in Hebrew that word "sum" can mean beginning and we see it all over the text of Scripture, but it also means the sum of something, and we can find this in different passages. I would take uh, too long and be too much of a geek for you this morning, but, but the, word, the word sum here is really important because if we translate the term beginning, that is, the beginning of your word is truth, you can see the problem you can see that if we say only the beginning of God's word word is truth, we're wondering what the remainder of it actually is. Now, the second half of verse 160 uh, fills in the gap, even for translations that use, interpret that word beginning. The sum of your word is truth, or uh, your word is true from the beginning. The problem with the rendering there is that that's not how the Hebrew words are written, so the, the interpreters have kind of jostled things around to make sense of it. But the second half half of it, of course, comes in to the defense of what we're talking about. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. What I want us to focus on today is this idea that the sum of God's Word, that every piece of God's Word, when it's considered together, when it's understood, that is what the Bible says is truth. Now, does that mean that the parts are not true? No, not at all. It it means that they are true. That's fine. But the sum total, is true, which means there's something more when we're studying God's word that we need to understand. This is one of my favorite principles uh, in the Bible, one of my favorite biblical principles because it really does help us to understand God's word in its fullness. It also settles a very important uh, discussion or issue that happens, I think, among different denominations in the church. And that is that it settles a lot of character issues that we have about God. So let me, let me give you a couple of four instances here or, or examples. In Hebrews 13, 8, here's what we see. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. So, so when is Jesus changing? Never. He's never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so with that really important truth, let's look at what Psalm 711 tells us about God's character. This is powerful. God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. And this is a really hard pill to swallow for many people, especially in the culture we live in today. And, God, and a God who has indignation every day. Wow. So he's kind of upset a lot. <laughs> he, he's burning with indiga- indignation Some translation says burning with anger every day Now we add to that something from Exodus 34 14 Which is just overwhelming at times For you shall not worship any other god For the Lord And most of us know this phrase For the Lord is a jealous God But they overlook something powerful in this The Lord whose name is Jealous we have many names for God in the Scripture. He is the Bright and Morning Star. He's the Wonderful Counselor. He's the Prince of Peace. All of those are favorable terms. <laughs> he is also jealous. That's his name. So when we see passages in Scripture where it says God is love, that is his essence. That is his character. A name depicts essence. It depicts who a person is. And so in this situation, God is a jealous God. So. Okay, well, if we, if we look at both of those, here's what we come away with. God's mad all the time, and he's jealous all the time, and sadly, we filter that through our interpretations of anger and jealousy. That's what we do. But see, the same scripture that communicates this communicates These powerful truths as well. And they're all over the Old Testament, just so you know. So here's what Jonah says about God. Remember who Jonah is. Jonah's the guy who's supposed to go and minister to the Ninevites. He's supposed to proclaim repentance and and proclaim their deliverance. And, And he runs from this so much so that he has to be swallowed by a fish. All of this crazy piece of the story. He's supposed to do this. And he gets mad at God when God does relent from the calamity that he had promised to invoke upon Nineveh. He gets mad because he knew God was going to be gracious, is what Jonah finally concludes. I knew you'd be this God. Uh, So Jonah clearly has a little bit of anger issues, a little bit of revenge issues, I think. And, And so in this, though, he communicates another truth about God. He prayed to the Lord, that is Jonah, and said, and there's... There's more in this, and you'll hear Jonah's complaining if you look it up, Jonah 4.2. But what I want you to highlight in this is he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. One who relents concerning calamity. Now there's a lot to be said about understanding the whole of God's word, especially when it comes to God does not repent as a man repents, and yet here God relents. There's an understanding we have to come to that we understand, we we gain or we see the truth of what Scripture is actually communicating. So powerful stuff. But what we have in Jonah 4, 2 is a Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and a relenting God. Okay, now now what have we looked at so far? We've got an angry, jealous God, but now we have what appears to be a lot of the opposite of that. 2 Peter 3.9, this is kind of the New Testament equivalent to what Jonah says. Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, I'm going to get off on a little bit of a a side note here by expounding on this verse for a second. But what I want you to see is that at one hand, we have an angry God who burns with indignation every day. We have a God whose name is Jealous. By the way, he didn't get a name change in the New Testament. And then Hebrews tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Old and New Testament tell us that he's compassionate and patient and loving and kind and and all of these things. See, the sum total of God's word is truth. And the danger that we have, the thing that we see a lot of times in branches of the church, is that people want to favor one side over the other. The people who are given towards God wanting to drop the hammer love the fact that God is a God of wrath, that God is angry, that God hates sin, and even sinners. The Bible says it, contrary to those popular uh, slogans that we put out there. Then you flip the coin and you have the other side of the church that loves and touts the idea that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We love John 3.16. We often forget about John 3.17 that says, whosoever doesn't believe in him already stands condemned because God condemned them. <laughs> so so we've, got, we've got both of these. By going to either side, what we've said We've undermined Psalm one nineteen one sixty, And what we've said is not the sum of God's word is truth. My side of God's word is truth. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. God has justice and God has mercy. God is just. He is angry. He is jealous. We should look at him and revere him as holy. This is why the scripture tells us to fear the Lord. And at the same time, he is compassionate If we will simply surrender, repent, and believe in his name. This passage in 2 Peter, though, is powerful because, and this is what I wanted to kind of expand on here. Uh, We kind of miss the point of this passage, right? The Lord is not slow about his promises, So right away, what's implied here is that there was a complaint about God not fulfilling his promises. Where's God at? I mean, he should have been here by now, okay? God is not slow in regard to his promises, as some count slowness. But instead, God is patient toward you. So this, this is implied, but it's so ridiculously clear in its implicit nature that, that you, you, it's amazing that we've missed it for so long. The only person in this verse that is slow is us. <laughs> the only person slow in this is us. God is not slow as we define it. God's actually patient. Who is slow? The people who won't repent. Stubborn as we are right? So he says the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness. He's actually patient towards you. You're the slow one, not wishing that any will perish, but that all will come to repentance. I really wish we would get this. I wish we would also humble ourselves and recognize this truth. There are many times when God is saying, and this is for Christians too, remember who Peter was writing to. Remember who he's writing to. He's not writing to the world. This is not an evangelistic message to the world. This is a message to the church, to those redeemed. And he says, you know what? God is convicting you and, and calling you to repentance and to walk in holiness and righteousness and purity before him. But you know what the problem is? You're stubborn. You want your sin. You love your sin. And God's going, please, come on. I'm being patient with you. I'm being patient. We're going to see how that patience comes right back into Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160 in the end here. So what we have is we have an angry God, a jealous God, but we also have this loving, compassionate, kind, patient God. And again, this doesn't, this doesn't even bring up John 3.16 or 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says that uh, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a powerful, powerful truth. So what's the point? Well, Psalm one hundred nineteen, one hundred sixty 160 tells us very clearly that the sum of God's word is truth. It's the sum truth that we need to be looking at in this story. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, he is a, a, a theologian and a scholar, and he is somebody that I highly respect, wrote in his book, The Unseen Realm, this. And I believe it paints a beautiful picture of what Psalm 119, 160 uh, is communicating and what David understood. The Bible is really a theological and literary mosaic. You guys know what a mosaic is. All of these small uh, connected parts that don't actually have their own Uh, image or piece to them. But as a whole, they communicate something. The pattern in a mosaic often isn't clear up close. It may appear to be a random assemblage of pieces. Only when you step back can you see the wondrous whole. Yes, the individual pieces are essential. Understand, God's word is true, the whole thing. But the sum of God's word is the truth of our understanding where we begin to walk in Light of who God is. So he says, yes, the individual pieces are essential. Without them, there would be no mosaic. But the meaning of all the pieces is found in the completed mosaic. And a mosaic isn't imposed on the pieces. It derives from them. This is where the church gets into a lot of trouble, A lot of trouble. Because what we do is we zoom in on one passage, in other words, one piece of the mosaic, and we say, that's what's true. Maybe. Maybe. And here's why it's a maybe. Not that it isn't true, but it takes the whole to understand what the truth is conveying. What is true about it. Right? So, so we need to zoom in and we need to zoom out. We need to see both sides. So I'm going to give you another example. Our first example has to do with God's character. We talked about his, his being jealous and being angry, but we also talk about him being loving and compassionate and kind. This next example is going to deal with how we interpret the Word of God. So in Deuteronomy 25, 4, here's what we read. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. So in case you guys are getting ready to raise some oxen, this is just, there you go, price of admission. You can go home now. Wait a minute, you are home. Anyway, so okay, so we've got Deuteronomy 25.4 the oxen, right? Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Now, another passage like this is found in Leviticus 19, 13. This doesn't have to do with oxen, but you're going to see why these are related. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. And in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, it'll go clearer into this idea that the worker is worthy of his or her wages. Now, we can look at that and say, cool, God was all about oxen and he's all about your workers. So make sure you take care of that whole situation. But that's not the whole of God's word. The sum of God's word is truth. Psalm 119, 160. So look at what happens. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well... That's an important thing. Those who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Well, thanks, Lord. I didn't know I was a, a livestock. Anyway, so, okay, so don't, tr- don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. That's really a strange interpretation. It's a strange cross-reference. Uh, we, we live in a church world where people use texts as their proof texts all the time. I have rarely found somebody who tries to find these texts as their proof texts for anything. But Paul seems to want to do that. It's really good, okay? Now, look at what Paul goes on to say. So Paul wrote this to Timothy. But look at what Paul goes on to say in Corinthians. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Rhetorical question. Nobody does that. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Nobody does that. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Nobody does that. Do I say this merely on human authority? No, I guess not, Paul. (laughs) So he goes on. Doesn't the law say the same thing? I don't know where that is. Can you point me to the verse? Sure, for it is written in the law of Moses. Look at what verse 9 through 10 say. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? I I thought so. (laughs) What are you doing, Paul? You're confusing me. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? I didn't think so, but I'm going to go with you on this one, right? You are, after all, Paul. Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Why am I bringing this up? Why why do I talk about muzzling oxen and all of a sudden we've got these elders and these pastors? Because when we understand the principle in Psalm 119, 160 correctly, what we get is that the sum of God's word is truth. And the sum of God's word is what gives us the understanding that God's ministers are worth their keep. Now, I'm going to have our pro-presenter team go back to the Timothy passage real quick. Because I want to highlight some points that maybe we overlook in Timothy. Back to 1 Timothy. uh, Just two slides before this, guys. 1 Timothy So look at what what this says. This is so good, so good. The elder who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, right? They're, They're the ox that is not to be muzzled as they tread out the grain. Here's something that's really important for leaders and especially for elders in a church present company included because I got all my elders here. Anyway, but this is this is good to learn and to know, but they do this well. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. What does that imply? It implies you can be an elder of a church and not direct affairs well, affairs well. That happens. That happens. Just because you're given a title in God's kingdom doesn't mean you're the Pope because the Pope isn't even the Pope, right? There's nobody infallible in this. So you can do things well and you can do things poorly. And so God says that the one who does them well, that person is worthy of double honor. Now look at what else is implied. Very cool. They are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. Did you see what's implied there? Not el- all elders preach and teach. They don't have to. They must be able to. That's a qualification of an elder. And Jacob Dolezal thinks he's gonna get out of this someday in his life, but it's not gonna happen, okay? So, but my point, my point is that, that they are they are called to be able to teach because where where do the people um, who are the people that hold the mooring lines of the church? According to the scripture, this is the elder in the church. They are supposed to be mature. They are supposed to have qualifications that are met. Why? Because they're holding things together. I'm not talking about like Jesus does. I'm not talking about like the Holy Spirit does. I'm talking about like the Holy Spirit conveyed in the scripture we're supposed to do. We're supposed to teach sound doctrine. We're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. But what's amazing is what is implied here. So this is where the whole of God's word again Begins to communicate the truth. The scripture says that an elder has to be able to teach. That is they have to be able to communicate the truths of God. It does not mean that they serve in that capacity at all times. It also means that they could not serve well in that capacity like we saw here. So again, all I'm trying to show you are these amazing, uh, amazing components in which understanding the whole gives us right truth. Otherwise, what we do is we hobby horse on things, right? How many of you know that people take things out of context all the time? I am a context junkie. I am one of these people who proclaims this, and I'm going to proclaim it until Jesus returns. Uh, John Pryor sent me this really cool coffee mug this week, and it just made me laugh. Uh, He sent me a picture of it. John never sends me the actual coffee mug. I don't understand what's going on here. But anyway, so he sends me the picture of it. says, hey, order it yourself. Anyway, so so the coffee mug, it says, uh, I can do all things through a a passage taken out of context. I can do all things through a passage taken out of context. You guys know how true that is? You can cherry pick verses in the Bible, you can go and say, boom, and then say, here's my truth. No, no. And if you get lucky, and it actually is the truth, please realize you got lucky, and you shouldn't do that again. (laughs) It's really, really dumb. Okay, so uh, everything can be taken out of context. We can miss it. What's the principle? The sum of God's word is truth. That's why we need to really grow in our understanding. Look at what Jesus said. About this idea of bringing the Old Testament into the New Testament, when he talked about uh, when he talked about a worth, a worker being worthy of his keep, Luke chapter ten verse seven it says, "Do not do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts." He's sending out the seventy, no bag for the journey, or extra shirt, or sandals, or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. And other translations say the worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus is quoting a, a passage from Deuteronomy and a passage from Leviticus. Why? Because the sum total of God's word is truth. So here's three principles about biblical interpretation that I believe will help you as you grow in your understanding of God's word. The first is Psalm 119, It's the sum of God's word that is truth, church. It's the sum of God's word that is truth. And until you understand the whole, some of those component parts might seem to you to communicate one thing, when in fact, they communicate another thing altogether. So the first principle is Psalm 119, 160. The sum of God's word is truth. The second principle is this. The Bible will interpret itself. The Bible will interpret itself. What do I mean by this? Nathan, don't pastors and teachers have a responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth? Don't don't they need to do this? Yes, but let me give you an example of what we're actually doing here. Imagine you have a connect the dots picture, like for your kids or something, or a paint by number set. What we're called to do is rightly interpret the instructions. Moving from one to two to three to four and not jumping to 14. My daughter did this the other day where she was doing a connect the dots. She thought, she went on her intuition, trying to work that out. It's hard because her dad is driven by intuition. But so I said, I said, you've got to keep looking. You've got to study the details of this. This is something that we're just not that fond of, right? We've got to look at the details because she skipped from like 20 to 27 or something like this and it ruined the picture. Her reaction, kind of a typical child's reaction. She wadded the paper up and she didn't want to do it anymore. And what happens there is you just take them back through, you teach them the truth, you explain to them what went wrong and how it works and then you go from there, right? So the idea is a paint by numbers set or the idea is a, uh, a connect the dots, the Bible, our job to interpret the, our, jo- our job as pastors and teachers in interpreting the Bible is to follow the instructions, which means we let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's what we do. Here's, here's what the job of a pastor and a teacher is not and never will be. Creating numbers in the, in the connect the dots puzzle. Deciding what the picture is in the paint by numbers set. Not our job. Not our job at all. And when we get into that place, all of a sudden we come away, maybe even sometimes with a really beautiful picture. It's just not God's picture. And so this is really important. The Bible is going to interpret the Bible. So we don't just get to make stuff up as we go okay, this is going to curtail biblical interpretation because what we're not going to do is say, well, in Deuteronomy it uses this word and in, and in uh, Matthew it uses the same word uh, transliterated from Hebrew to Greek, therefore, warm and fuzzy feeling, it must mean what I say it means. No, it, does, it must do nothing. What it is going to do is either the Bible is going to say this is what that means or you don't get to claim anything. <laughs> right? Either you get to look for a passage like Paul says. Isn't this what God meant? Isn't this what God was telling us? Don't muzzle the ox while treading out the grain. It means that ministers can can make their earning from what they do. Isn't that what it means? The answer is yes, because Paul said so. You don't get to do that anywhere else. And that's one of the most common ways of interpreting the Bible today. People just I, th- I see a connection that I want to see. It's not your job. It's not your job. What this, what this creates is those Bible programs where they look for codes and words and all kinds of numbers and all of these other things. Is there such a thing as typology? Yes, there is. The Bible will tell us what the types mean and what they are. But the sum of God's word, church, church, is truth. So number one, some of God's word is truth, the the biblical principle of Psalm 119, 160. The second, the Bible will interpret itself. And the third, that being said, the character of God is unchanging. The character of God is unchanging, which then leads to how we understand certain things that are universal or they apply to us today. I love when people quote Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and keep you and to give you a future, and all of this. Wonderful. Sounds really powerful, and it must have been powerful to the people it was actually written to, not you. So it was powerful, because right after that, there was something else that was written to those people, too, and that is, I promise you're going into captivity. You notice no Christian claims that part. Why is it that they don't claim that part? Here is what most Christians, I I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Here's what I think most Christians are trying to do. I think they're trying to say, God in his nature is caring for his people. Of course, but we have New Testament references for that, don't we? God cares for the sparrow. Does he not care much more for you? God cares for the lilies of the field. Are you not much more important than they? You see, the, the principle of God's character is that he's loving and kind and patient and he wants the best for his kids. That's what's true according to the scripture. I don't need to claim a a, a promise out of context. I don't need to do it. No need. So when we move forward in this, we start to understand that God's character is always there. It is always pressing. It is always true. It is always impactful to us. So last week, I briefly touched on this idea of Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one. And what happens in that, the, the parable of the lost sheep, this is found in Luke chapter 15. But what happens with this? Well, we miss something very important. We read that the parable says that God left the 99, that's the saved people, and he goes after the unsaved people, that is the world. Do you realize what you're doing? What you're doing is you're reading a modern lens. You're reading the Bible through a modern lens. You're reading your position and worldview and context into the biblical text. What was the context of Luke 15? Jesus was talking about the lost sheep of Israel. So what does it mean that God leaves the 99 and goes after the one? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that Jesus was being sarcastic. God left the 99 righteous ones. There's no one righteous, so that's just a dumb thing. Jesus was just playing. Well, think about why that's, that's irrational. Jesus then going after the one who's, quote, not righteous would mean Jesus is going after the hundred. He goes after everybody. But that's not what that's saying. What happens is that there were people in Israel, Anna, Simeon, there was Zechariah, there were these people, Mary, the mother of Jesus, there were these people, just like Abraham, just like Jonah, or just like Job, just like Noah, that were counted as righteous. That's the declaration of them. But God goes after his wandering sheep. Now, There's a principle that I'm going to get to at the end of this, that's going to really, really be helpful to you when you understand the Psalm 119:160 160 principle. The sum of God's word is truth. So what we read is he leaves the 99, that's the saved. He goes after the one, the unsaved, that's the world. Now here's an important thing. Does God want the world to be saved? Yes, he does. He wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. Who has he sent after the world? us with the message of our savior we are to preach the gospel to the world but jesus was going after his lost sheep he cared for them what is he presenting to you what is he showing to you he's a protector a caregiver he's gracious he's merciful he wants his people to return to him the sum of god's word is truth the sum of god's word communicates his character and what we see from this passage is that God is one who leaves the porch and goes and tackles his child. He loves them. But here is what, we, uh, what the word of God will do if, if, it, uh, if we'll remember it, if we'll read it over and over, if we will hide God's statutes and his commands and his laws, all that David has talked about in Psalm 119, inside of our heart. What we will see is we will see the faithfulness, we'll see the love, we'll see the mercy and the kindness of our Creator. It will remind us of the terms and conditions of His statutes. That's what the Scripture tells us. It's going to tell us that God has called us to repent. If we read the whole thing, it's going to tell us that God is called to repent, called us to repent. It's going to tell us that He is coming for us and that we are to be ready for Him. Not people without our lamps lit. All these things are amazing truths because the word of God was given to us, not so that we could pass some test to get to heaven, but so that we could know our creator. But the sum of God's word is how you're going to know your creator. Church, I said it last week, it's, it's worth repeating. God loves us, church, with a love that you and I don't often, last week I said can't, He loves us with a love that we don't often comprehend. It's a love that David understood. It's a love that the prodigal remembered. It's a love that Jesus declared. And it's a love that Paul preached repeatedly. But for that matter, so did Jonah in the Old Testament. I knew you were a God of loving kindness and compassion who would relent against calamity if people would repent. What a powerful truth. If this word is hidden inside of us, guess what we're going to do? We're going to walk in light of that truth. But what do we need hidden inside of us? The whole of God's word. Now let me take a quick second and tell you something that's, that is good for you to know. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to get the Bible. But you should want to be a Bible scholar, You you don't have to. Uh, uh, Pastors love these phrases, and this is a good one, this is a good one, that the gospel is so deep that we can drown in its truths. It's also shallow enough that a baby can play in the water. The point that is made by that is that God's word is unbelievably deep and we should be pursuing it all the days of our life. Why? So that we can actually know who he is. I don't want to see this part of a mosaic all my life. I don't want to see one piece of a mosaic. I want to be able to step back and see the whole thing. And that's what God's word is telling us. If we'll step back, the whole, the sum of God's word is truth. So it's, So it's really good for us to to catch on to this. We don't have to be a Bible scholar, but boy, we should be pursuing that. So again, on this Mosaic concept, let's just jump right back into Luke chapter 15. Um, Verse 7 says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. First of all, the righteous persons are there in heaven too. What an interesting idea. But the rejoicing is found in those who repent. Because the point of God's word was to convey something. God has called his covenant people to repent and to believe in him. Paul says something in Romans. He says, he says uh, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And then he answers his own question. He says, much in every way. For they were the ones to whom the promises and the laws, the commands, the statutes, all that David has talked about in Psalm 119, they're the ones to whom that was given. They have much advantage. Here, let me tell you one glimpse of their advantage. Their advantage is they actually have the opportunity to know God better than anybody else. Because if we'll study the sum of God's word, we will know the truth. And what does the scripture say about truth? If we know that truth, the truth will set us free. This is not generic truth. This is not what you see on colleges posted in in stone up on their their walls. We're not talking about any of that stuff. What we're talking about is the truth of God. And guess what, church? It It is absolutely freeing when we understand it. So the three principles, yet again, and we're going to wrap this up. The three principles are the Psalm 119, 160 principle. The sum of God's word is truth. Don't fall for the idea that you understand everything because you saw one piece of the mosaic. Zoom out. Read from Genesis to Revelation a thousand times. You will begin to understand the story better and better. Principle number two, the Bible will interpret itself. The reason why we don't understand it is we don't read it. And then guess what happens? A bunch of people operating on their intuition are arguing with each other about what they don't know. And so they go, it says it right here. Nice cherry-picked verse, that's great. It also says this right here. Instead of reconciling, let me tell you what happens. The more followers you you gather behind you when you hold to a position, the harder it is for you to relent from from foolishness. It's really hard. So what happens is you have to look at it and you have to say how does the scripture confirm this idea? How does the scripture confirm this idea? And when you do that, instead of butting heads and fighting and creating denominations, brothers and sisters should come together and say, thank you for helping me in my understanding of who God is. And I hope that what I offer you will help you in your understanding of who God is. You see, David understood something that we don't know, or we, we haven't, we've lost some time ago, and that is the sum of God's word is truth. You you will never in this life stop studying the God of the universe. I, I love when I get to talk to uh, couples and they talk about uh, they talk about the pursuing of their spouse, right? And so they they talk about pursuing their wife, the husband pursuing the wife, or the wife pursuing the husband, and and how after you say I do, it becomes a I did, not a I will, <laughs> and that's what I do is an I will, not an I did, and so it becomes this I did, and and. Inevitably, you, you hear people say, he just doesn't pursue me or she doesn't pursue me. It's just, it's a challenge. I have to imagine that this is God's cry when he says, I'm not slow as you think I am. You're the one who doesn't want to come to me. You're the one struggling. You don't pursue me anymore. God is the infinite God of the universe. We stopped pursuing a finite creature in our spouse. We, should, we stopped pursuing God a long time ago. We need to pick it all back up. Pursue your wife because you said I will. But pursue God because he is the one who redeemed you and saved you. You don't get to just say, well, I've read enough of the Bible. I get the truths. I can hold my own. That's, That's arrogant to begin with. You need to look for ways that maybe your ideas are not exactly what you thought they were. What you'll do is you'll come away stronger if they're true. And you'll come away correct if they're not. That's powerful, church. It's powerful. So, the principles of Psalm 119, 160. Uh, the last one is that God's character is unchanging. His character is not going to change. So, when you read of a loving, kind, generous, yet holy, just, angry, jealous God in the Old Testament, He's the same. And when you saw Jesus, you saw the same. You saw a God who loved the sinner. Because he died for them, and you saw a God who tossed the tables in the temple. This is what you saw. The same Jesus, same God of the Old Testament, that's who we're following. So I hope these principles will help you as we move forward, because what David understands is something we need to understand. The sum of God's word is truth, and it will radically change our hearts and our minds when we understand it. So this morning, we're going to end again with worship. We're going to sing to our king. And what I would encourage you to do this week is I would encourage you to, uh, this this is going to bring you into the realm of songs, and we want to hear from you, right? We want to hear about songs that are really speaking to you, but for a purpose, okay? You read God's word, and then you hear a song, and it conveys that truth. I'm not talking about the songs that talk about how you're always going to worship God, but you never get around to it. I'm talking about songs that convey the truths of God and his glory and his beauty and his majesty. My mother-in-law sent me a, a really a great uh, YouTube channel this week or a YouTube uh, video this week uh, with uh, Keith and Christine Getty, who I love, and, and a lot of their songs. And man, these songs are rich with biblical truths. But what's amazing about these biblical truths, too, is that in many cases, the songs are conveying not just what the psalm said or not just what the Bible would say, but what the Bible is teaching because these are two people who are striving to understand God's word in its fullness. So I think you understand the principles, but what I want you to do is I want you to pursue God's word, and I want you to pursue some songs. And I want you to send them to me, Frankhauser at gmail.com, uh, nathanfrankhauser at gmail.com. Send them to me. I want to hear the songs that, that are really uh, exciting you and causing you to worship, because we're a people who need to be worshiping and praising and rejoicing in who God is. But we also need to rejoice rightly in who God is. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at PiercePoint.org for more information.